On episode 308 of the Tennis Files podcast, you'll learn how to use data to win more matches with coach Mark Sofalis. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Tennis Files Podcast, bringing you advice from the top minds in tennis to help you improve your game. And now, here's your host, Mirban Iranshad. Hey there, I hope you're having a great day and are improving your tennis game. And on today's episode, we have an interview with Coach Mark Sofalis, who, if you're a fan of the podcast or my summits, I'm sure you've heard before. Um, he's an excellent coach. Uh, he is the head coach at the Melbourne International Tennis School in Melbourne, Australia. Uh, he has coached many pros, inclu- including Anastasia Rodionova, Dane Propogia, and Vin- Victor Hanescu, among many others. Uh, Mark has also spoken at conferences around the world and has been a commentator for professional tennis matches. And Mark is also the director and head coach of the Tennis Menu which is a fantastic instructional tennis site, which you should check out. Um, Links to the tennis menu are um, below this episode's uh, show notes. So definitely go there. Go to thetennismenu.com. And today, uh, Mark is going to talk about the most important data points that you can use to transform the way that you practice and play matches. So it's all about figuring out, um, you know, the data, and then, you know, the most important points there. And then from there, you can formulate how you practice and you can formulate your strategy and things like that. So uh, this will definitely be uh, a very helpful episode for you if you would like to improve your strategy and improve the way you train. So without further ado, here is my interview with Coach Mark Sofalis. So obviously, you know, the title is has uh, data in it, uh, super interesting. And it's something that I think um, the tennis world is certainly like lagged in comparison to other sports, um, you know, like golf and baseball, for example. So uh, just kind of to set the stage, why is data so important to tennis and, and what is the impact of that? I think I think data in particular is important um, as it's factual information. And I think, you know, when we think data, we think purely numbers, but data to me is is vision. It's it's numbers, it's facts, it's not opinion. And you know, when when I first started, um, I was I was working in Australian football in two thousand and seven. Was the first time I actually saw data being used, and I'd never really seen it in tennis at that time. And that kind of sort of stimulated um, some thought in in me, in that I thought, well, hang on, they're using this to construct their own training sessions as well as game plans, as well as um, measurements for improvement for their athletes. Why are we doing this in tennis? So I thought that would, was the, the starting point. I thought, gee, we're a long way behind. If we haven't even started and they've been doing this for a long period of time, why haven't we started? So I think it's important because it, it shows you and it gives you, um, like I said, the factual information that you can work from and then gives you measurement tools to be able to continually measure your progress from where you were to where you are now. And that, to me, is important in, in development of athletes of um, from a coaching standpoint 
to sell a story to people because sometimes you kind of think, you know, you've got a player in front of you and you say to them, you're improving, but their losses are, you know, having, ha- happening too frequently. And they're kind of saying to you, well, I'm not improving, but you, you measure from a, uh, an analytical standpoint and it shows them the improvement and maybe first serve percentage or first serve points one or uh, using their weapon a little bit more to create some forced errors from the opponent. And then they start to see the measurement being used and they think to themselves, well, they're the things we've been working on. Yeah, maybe I am improving. So it can, it can kind of sell the story and create a really good story for a coach to be able to tell their athlete. And um, so it is important in, in so many aspects of the game. And I'm sure we'll touch on all the different ways of doing that as we go along. Yeah, definitely, Mark. And uh, it's it's very um, you know smart of you and Sage that you you know when you saw that the data um, in a different context in 2007 that that you thought about like why aren't we using it? So um, you know, in terms of like you know types of data, I mean, you know, obviously, you know, we've got like the uh, strategy, technique, fitness, mental game, etc. Like, I was wondering, like, what um, which ones of those have you been? kind of focusing on or like have you have you just been looking at data for like all that stuff like what have you been looking at lately yeah i think the 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 biggest thing with with data is what am i going to use it for so it's important that when you capture data it's 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 used in the way that it needs to be used so for example um i have a great um data scientist that i work with and and i'll give him a pump up but data-driven sports analytics shane leonage and i we work together now for a for a long period of time, and um, Shane is is the data analyst for On Jabor and Arena Sabalenka, just to name a couple of um, incredible athletes he's working with. Um, and Shane and I started working together about probably seven or eight years ago now. And what we've done is he's come up with a lot of uh, data around shot loadings, for example. So, so how many shots are hit per match um, on average to give me an idea of what kind of loads I need to put into my athletes to reduce injury. So we always talk about overload, we talk about underload injuries, but what does that actually mean unless you've got the data? So but in particular, so you've got on the men's tour, on the ATP tour, uh, men are averaging 85.96 serves per match. The women are averaging 69.66. So you get a number like that and you think to yourself, well, what am I going to do with it? So for me, it's around how much am I loading my athletes in training so that therefore when they go to the match, their bodies are able to sustain the level for as long as they need to. Now, you're not hitting those 85 or 69 serves all at once either. You're doing serving, returning, serving, returning. So it can help you to structure your session to enable you to be more match-specific and match-like in terms of the way you go about your training sessions. Um, A number, for example, like the 631 um, shots hit per match on the men's tour on average um, and on the women's two of 530. So am I simulating enough balls being struck by my players that are going to allow their bodies to physically enable the rigors of the game? So from a, from a developmental standpoint, I think it's important to understand those kind of numbers. Um, yes, they're generic. Yes, they're averages and they're not specifics. And everyone has their own game style. So Ibo Karlovic, who serve and volleys and probably doesn't rally more than two or three balls is going to be very different to a Diego Schwartzman, for example. So the individualism will come into it as we go along, but I think having the ability to understand loads of shot actually helps me to design a training session that all of my athletes can then go into tournaments and matches and be able to sustain and, and withstand that the physical nature of our game, which is is incredible. Like when you think of you know a team sport and you know, I coach in the Australian Football League and and for us, 
a player may touch the ball 15, 20, 30 times per game. Now, we play once a week. So in that one week of match-orientated situations, they're touching the ball at most 30 times. Now, as a tennis player, we're hitting 631 shots per match. We may have to play six matches in one week, day after day. So our body is having to withstand so much physical strain that we need to be able to uh, give our players the best chance of survival. You know, it's a very survival-paced sport, um, in inverted commas. So um, so the shot loadings for me are probably some of the most critical and are even to the point of, uh, you know, I know Craig O'Shaughnessy is big on uh, the, the all-ball um, kind of uh, point situations. Now, on the women's tour, 63% of points finish under four shots. On the men's tour, 66% finish under four shots. Now, that doesn't mean that we just practice the four shots, but that gives you an idea of how our sport is quite short, sharp, and powerful. So, you know, when, you, when you're training as a tennis athlete, everything should be based around, okay, how do I set my serve up to get the first ball as a first strike? And do I, where do I put my return to get the first strike in the rally? So you use the numbers to be able to direct and guide your training sessions um, and also to tell you what the game is currently doing. And that is, I guess, if I'm, from a coaching standpoint, from a player's will be different. From a coaching standpoint, if I don't maintain my ability to stay in touch with the game, then I'm not developing my players for what they've got to come. So I need to stay in touch with the latest information and data. And that kind of is, for me at the moment, in the, in the area I'm coaching in junior development a lot more of the time rather than the pro level, it is critical for me to understand what the game is doing and where the game is going. So the numbers give me those factual bits of information. So... To answer your question, I think, you know, when we use um, how I'm using data is is in that space at the moment from a developmental standpoint. And I guess the other part that I, I do use it for is measuring progress. So when we talk about technique, and I know you mentioned the word technique, tennis coaches gravitate to the word technique and gravitate to technical aspects of the game. And because they gravitate to that, all of the players are doing the same. So it was like, you know, you ask a question, to an athlete, you know, what did you do in that situation? Why did you miss that ball? And they'll gravitate to the fact that they didn't hit enough topspin or their racket didn't go back early enough or their left arm positioning wasn't across the body. So they gravitate to the technical side of the game. And that is important, but not as important as what the game actually asks you to do. So where should that shot have gone? How should you have played the shot there? What would you do next time you play that shot? So um, if we think, um, data based on technique, we're thinking of visual stimulation. So we'll look at video analysis, we'll break it down, we'll draw lines. But a lot of the time, a lot of the reasons why we don't actually have success on the tennis court is not because of our technical side of the game. It's actually because of our decision-making and shot selection more often than not. No matter what level you play at, your technique is determined by your intent um, and your intent is around where you're trying to play, how you're trying to play it there and why you're trying to play it there. So um they're kind of the different aspects of of data at the moment that I think are critical to the development of our players. Yeah, there's a lot of cool stuff in here. Um, you know, I think, um, so, I mean, is it as simple as, as the concept of mirroring? So, like, let's say, you know, we see that, you know, we're, we're hitting, like, usually hitting, like, 70% forehands and a max 30% backhand, just for example. I mean, does that mean that, we, you know, when we're practicing, we should like mirror that or is there like more to the story as well? 
Oh, I think that's a, it's a great idea. You know, we had a, uh, there's a story of a player I was coaching um, a little while back and I'll, I'll probably keep his name close to my chest, but he's sort of sitting around the inside the, the 250 in the world market at the moment. And some of the data we came up with for him was every time he hit three forehands in a point, he won the point 95% of the time. So some of the training that we had to then mirror was, okay, well, how do we get that situation more often? Where do we need to play the forehand to get that happening a lot more? Um, and it's not just a matter of just hitting the forehand. It's actually where we're hitting it from and where we're hitting it to. So that's probably the, the, the layers of the story that probably need to occur as well is, you know, you could hit a forehand and you could be totally out of position to play it and it might not have the same effect. So, you know, we, we had to work out, yes, the three forehands were important, but where were those forehands going? And then how are we setting up the point? So for this particular player, we found that the, the two of the forehands had to be from the ad side of the court. So we had to set the game up. So the first forehand would probably go up the line if we possibly could from the juice side to shift the game back to the ad side of the court in terms of our recovery position and then utilize that forehand from the ad side of the court. So that's kind of the layers of, of the data that I think is very critical to, to understand as well. So you're right, the data gives us an ability to understand what we are doing, but how we utilize that's also important. So your data might say that you're missing more backhands than you are forehands. Does that mean you should practice more backhands because your backhand isn't working? Well, possibly not. It might mean that what you are doing with the previous ball is setting up the wrong situation for the backhand. It might mean that you are getting stuck in the backhand rally too often. It might mean that you're playing the backhand to the wrong shot on the court. So there's a little bit of a story behind the numbers. And a lot of the time when you see numbers, you've got to understand the reason behind them. Um, there's no point saying, oh, I made 50 unforced errors. I've just got to keep the ball in the court longer. Because it might not be that is the reason why you made 50 unforced errors. So, you know, there's a lot of um, digging that needs to happen. And a lot of that comes down to, so a really big part of how I go about it is we get the data, but I got I also record every match that they play. So it's recording the match and keeping the match to understand the reason behind all the numbers. And that gives us a bit of an idea of how to shape training a little bit more. Gosh, yeah, very interesting. And as I really enjoyed the, um, you know, how you went into, um, you know, the professional player and how you're trying to set up more forehands. I mean, uh, that's, yeah, that's what I try to do as well. I mean, a lot of players um, would like that to be able to hit more forehands. So was that very specific to his case where he would, you know, hit one down the line and then, you know, have his forehand set up to hit at least a, a few more um, since he can hit, you know, inside outs and whatnot? Or or um, is that like a general strategy that you think like a lot of us maybe should be using even at club level? Um, look, it's interesting, you know, and I'll try and explain this as best as I possibly can, as clear as I can to, to give your, your audience a bit of an idea. So if you think about the court um, and I'm on the juice side of the court, now, if I'm on the juice side of the court um, and I play a ball cross-court to the juice side of the court on the other side of the court, basically now, because my recovery position is is going to be on the right of center, so I'm going to be roughly about one meter off the center because when you play a cross-court ball, your recovery position will still be in that same zone. I now have a less chance of hitting a forehand on the next ball because there's so much more space to get to my backhand. So in his situation, it was a matter of, of going, okay, well, how can I set the court up to enable me to have more space to hit a forehand? Now, by going down the line, 
the ball then or the, the recovery position is on the ad side of the court. And when I'm on the ad side of the court, I now have roughly about a 65 to 70% chance of playing a forehand. So that's how I kind of felt, thought of it in that situation. The second part of that and the layers behind that is the grip that people hold. Now, if you have more semi-Western to Western-based grips, your court position for your forehand and you're better off playing um, from a court position standpoint from the ad side because of your Western and semi-Western grip to play inside out of the ball is a little bit easier than getting across the ball with your Western grip. But with an Eastern grip, it's probably a little easier to be on the juice side of the court because you actually can take time away. You don't have to actually get around the ball. You can actually hit flat through the line and change direction at any time. So it's kind of a different ball game. And it all depends on what grip you hold and what you, your obviously your strategy is. And if you want to hit more forehands, you want to try and you know, get to whichever side of the court you need to to be able to do that. But for this player in particular, we needed him on the ad side to maximize the potential of playing more forehand. So um, everyone can use that strategy and anyone can use that strategy if, if that's the, the, the way you want to go about it. But I think the court position standpoint is probably the most important to understand because if you can understand where your court positions are after each ball, you'll understand what the possibilities are, which shot you are going to play next more likely. So, um, you know, it's very easy to get to your backhand if you position yourself on the juice side. So your opponent could really expose your backhand side down the line if that happens. So I always encourage be the first one to change that direction if you can. Um, don't get stuck in the cross rally. Make sure you're the one that dictates the down the line ball to ensure that you have strike in the rally and you have the ascendancy in the point. Love that. Love that. And, and just some um, another, um, you know, well, a question about like underloading, I guess um, maybe to dive into that deeper. So like in what you know, how do you use underloading, um, you know, uh, relative to, to data and then, you know, like in your training and whatnot? Yeah, so um, I'll give you a little story of some of our players. So some of our um, academy players were were getting uh, overuse injuries a lot. And we did some research on it and it was interesting. We GPSed all of our players. So we put a tracking device on all our players. Uh, we met, we counted every ball they played in practice. We understood what the loadings were. We we tracked their weekly loads compared to um, match loads. And what we were finding was that our players were actually hitting significantly less balls in training than they were in a match on any one day. And if you think of some of the tournament schedules or competition that we generally play, you might play two matches in a day, sometimes three, depending on which tournament, which competition you play, whether it's a doubles comp, you play three in a day, whether you're playing doubles and singles, whether you play two rounds in a day. So what was happening was, and generally underload comes with a, uh, a spike in loading. So what was happening was they had this, this low level of loading and then they'd play a tournament and the spike would go up. And then because of the spike, we'd get these overload injuries from the tournament. So then we thought of, okay, well, how do we load our players enough so they're not getting underloading injuries from overloading in a match? So we had to load them gradually, obviously. You don't want to go from hitting once a week to 15 times a week um, just for the sake of uh, getting your loadings right. But we had to gradually start to load them a little bit more leading up to events to ensure that when they got to the event, there wasn't a spike in the load. So we had to change the protocols around uh, our weekly progress and, and our termly um, progressions of loading and gradually increase it so they weren't yeah, getting to a tournament having a massive spike. So um, we saw a significant decrease in injury from that. 
uh, which was really good because it was happening too often and too frequently. So, you know, data, data was able to, to lead us to that conclusion, which actually now is, is starting to settle down a lot of our players' injury standpoints as well. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Awesome, Mark. And um, so how do you use uh, data to um, to help like dissect opponents? Um, obviously, you know, like, when we're trying to formulate a game plan, like we think about our strengths and weaknesses, but then also it's so helpful to think about our opponent's strengths and weaknesses. So how, how do you use data um, against your opponents? It's a really good question. It's something that um, I'm grateful to have uh, Shane from, from Data Driven Sports Analytics. He's obviously my uh, my ally in this in this field, and he's been doing this for a, for a period of time that and had some great success. So generally... Um, we look at a player, it could be an upcoming player, and and he might send me all the vision. So from a data standpoint, the coach gets the vision, and then the data analyst sends us all these raw numbers. Now, Shane would send me pages upon pages of raw numbers of you know the amount of times the opposition player serves to a certain spot and their win ratios, what they do on big points, um, which side of the court they generally like to play from, um, which shot breaks down from which side of the court, where the return positions go on first and second serve. A lot of different data on that. But before that, I'll watch the match and come up with my own opinions as to what I'm seeing. Then we try and marry up the eyes and the data together, and then we create um, a plan based upon that. So um, what the way I like to do it, and this is just a personal preference, and then everybody has their own way, I dissect the game into three areas. The first one is, what am I doing on my serve and plus one? What am I doing on my return and plus one? And then what do I do when the ball is live after those first four shots? So there's three, three parts of the game. Um, and then I, I dissect the opponent in those three areas. What do they do on serve plus one, return plus one, and when the ball is in play? So I can understand the kind of style of play that the opponent wants to play and then the kind of style of play that I need my player to play. Now, you can look at it in different ways. From a, from a coaching standpoint, I could look at it from, well, I think my player's strengths are better than the opponent, so we're going to play to our strengths a lot more. Um, if I feel like the players are quite even, I might be able to try and expose the opponent in different ways. So look at, how do I um, use my player's strengths to dissect the opponent's weaknesses? Now, most of the time, though, and I think on this um, uh, tennis files before, we've spoken about the 80-20 rule. And we spoke about 80% of what we do on match day is what we can control. So that's our game plan versus 20% of how we break down the opponent. So for example, I'll give you a story. Rafael Nadal, his best plays are his slice serve and his forehand first ball. Okay, so he's obviously wants to dominate the court with his runaround forehand. He wants to plant, plant himself in the juice zone of the court, use his forehand as much as possible. Now, because he, he plays Novak Djokovic, who might be able to match him from the back of the court. That doesn't mean Nadal now says, okay, I'll serve and volley every point because that's the only way to beat Novak. Now, that's not the case. He'll still play to his strengths, but then try and expose Novak in different ways, right? So that's just a slight example. You won't change your whole game plan based upon 
what the opponent can or can't do. You still want to play to your strengths as much as possible. So when we dissect matches, we're looking for small areas that can be exposed rather than major things that will change the whole context of the game. Right? So I think it's, a, it's an important one to look at, especially you know when you go out to your local competition, you might not have the data based on your opponent. So you might have to think about, okay, well, the warm-up is the best opportunity, plus the first four games might be the best opportunity to be able to um, find out what my player can or can't do. What kind of grips do they hold? What kind of stances do they have? How can I expose those things? If they've got eastern grips, here's a little tip for your, for your audience, mate. So and this is from, from a playbook that I don't give away too often. So um, eastern grips require uh, closed stances more often than not. So when you play an eastern grip player, what you want to do is two things. One, either spread them wide and take them out of that closed stance situation to play them in an open stance or slow the ball down and hit higher. Get them above shoulder level so they have to generate their own speed from above shoulder level. Two things. You play a western grip player or a semi-western grip player. Speed the game up and give them no width. Okay, really importantly, because a western grip player wants time and space. Take away time and space. Take away the width. Take away the time. Okay, there's a little tip. So if you're thinking of your local competition levels or your um, anything that you play tournament-wise and you don't have the data based on the opponent, Think of how can I expose them in different ways, maybe technically, first and foremost, but also always remember what am I really good at and stick to that more often than not. Okay, stick to that first and then try and expose them in little ways afterwards. Awesome. Love those tips. Definitely uh, definitely very accurate ones in my experience, <laughs> uh, unfortunately against me. Uh, but yeah, uh, awesome. Love that. And, and you know, we did also kind of um, speak before the recording about... Um, the importance of where the art meets the science. So it means it to touch upon that and reiterate it for, for the audience as well. Yeah. And it's a, it's obviously an important one. And, and Shane and I, um, my trusty data analyst, uh, we, we have this, I guess, little funny debate all the time around what's more important, the art or the science. And obviously he's the science guy and I'm the art guy. And um, I have no idea about science and he has no idea about art. So we kind of, we kind of debate this all the time, but um you know, hopefully he doesn't listen to this conversation because he might get a little bit of a big head. But um, I, I've come to the conclusion that we're driven by science, which is our numbers and our vision, uh, but we construct we construct everything through art. Um, so we're kind of an artist that can paint our own picture and we're like a Picasso, but we need to understand what we are trying to draw first before we do that. So we need an image in our head. We need the science. We need the vision. We need the, the um, statistical information that gives us the facts to be able to then draw and create with our imagination. So if I can sort of summarize it in that, it's, you know, I think from a coaching standpoint, I always um, give the advice to coaches that it's where art meets science. And that's where you really get the benefit of what the data is. It's not just pure numbers and it's not just pure opinion. It's the ability to go, my eyes see this, but the facts are this and I bring them together. If we can find that sweet spot, I think it's really, really important for both players and and coaches. Um, you know, I find I find the science side of it is really compelling in terms of trying to sell the story to my players. You know, um, player says my forehand's crap. Okay, great. Give me some evidence behind that. Well, I don't have any evidence. It feels crap. And then I bring up the pure numbers, and they look at it and they go, "Oh, how come I'm winning more points with my forehand, and I thought my backhand was my best shot." Right. So it kind of like sells this story. And, you know, a lot of players, we all get into our own heads at times, right? We, we think 
things are happening, but we're not quite sure. You know, a player comes to me on a, after a weekend. I serve so bad on the weekend, and the, and I, I give a parent a, a, a task every weekend. Um, if any parents are watching this, we generally get very caught up in our players' outcomes. But I give them a task, and I think to them, I say to them, okay, here's your task for the weekend. I want you to chart how many first serves go in, how many points we win, for example. So then when the player comes back to me and says their serve is really poor, I go to them and I see the, 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 the data from the parent and the parent gives me the data and the data doesn't match what the kid's saying. And the kid then goes, oh, yeah, but it felt so bad. Yeah, but you served at 65% and that's the average of what the top 10 players in the world are doing and you're winning 70% of points. So to me, that's actually serving really well. And they look at me and they go, well, it didn't feel like that. And I'm like, well, that's okay. Well, it didn't have to feel like that. This is what the facts are telling us. So it just takes away that opinion and that that emotional state of a lot of people that, you know, we all get emotional about the way we play and we we kind of get attached to certain things and we all have this one shot, all of us, and I guarantee you'll be the same, Bourbon, and you've got one shot that you think is the worst shot you've got, but if you don't have the numbers behind, it's really hard to create that factual information if you don't have the numbers. So um, so the art and the science is really important to have the blend of the two and, and the ability to use the science uh, in the right way. So... You know, um, you know, I might get information on a player uh, which is mid-tournament that a certain shot is breaking down. And it could be a, a guy who has a Western grip forehand is getting exposed. They won the match, but it gets exposed on the fast ball. I'm not going to make a, a grip change mid-tournament. So it's understanding that, the, that that's not going to happen. It might mean that we need a, a tournament break, a block of training to be able to make those changes. But whereas if they're having a really slow start to matches um, and I'm seeing the data, so like in particular one player we had that we, we charted, he was winning 1.14 games every, every first four games of his matches for the last 12 months. So one game every four, first four games for 12 months. And this was mid-tournament and we got this, these numbers back and I was like, okay, we need to change the warm-up routine. Now we changed the warm-up routine mid-tournament. We then implemented it post-tournament and we created a change that player now wins close to three games every first four games every every match they play and all it was was a shift in warm-up and and pre-match routine so the science is there but it's like when do i implement it and how do i implement it and they're the kind of things that i think are the most critical for any player or coach is don't just grab the numbers and make change because change might not be the right time to do that make sure you understand when the right times are to make significant changes. And that's the the art of combining science and art together. Fascinating. And, and it's just curious. I mean, with the it's incredible, you know, how you changed uh, the, the you know the warm-up a bit and then, you know, the, you know, your player went from one point one four games out of four, wasn't yeah. to three games out of four. That's incredible. I was wondering, I mean, uh <laughs> what the what change was this? I mean, is this something that like uh, most of us, you know, club level players can also change? I'm, I'm really yeah, curious. Absolutely. Um, it was all legal. Let me tell you. <laughs> so, <laughs> no steroids. <laughs> it was all above board. But um, yeah, basically what we did was what I noticed in pre-match warmups was, um, you know, you go and hit for a match and you practice with your mate and then you go play, a, play your match. He was actually hitting... Um, at a very slow ball speed. But when he went to play matches, he played at a fast ball speed, obviously, because you tried to increase time, uh, lessen the time of the opponent, increase your time of your other end. And he didn't have range. So his intensity in warm-ups wasn't replicating what he wanted to start with in the match. So when he went to the match, 
he was trying to find range in the match. And I was like, that is not going to happen. So by the time first four games started, yeah, he started to find the range a little bit, but he's 3-1 down. And that wasn't really a great start for us. So what we tried to do was we increased the the tempo of training. Um, we created a point play at the end of every warm-up and we sped the, the warm-up up into ball speed. So uh, by the end of the warm-up, it felt like he'd already played the first four games and that he was into the match. So by the time he stepped on court, he was ready to go. And that that made a significant difference. We changed his eating habits. So I felt that he was, you know, two hours before the match, which is what we we're, we tell players to eat a big meal, a significant meal. He was eating that, which is great. He'd then have two hours then start his match. And by the time the match would also finish, that's like four or five or six hours by the time he'd eaten anything significant. So we also made sure that every half an hour he had either a muesli bar or a, a banana or an apple or something to maintain energy storage. So then when he started the match, he was starting a, a full fuel system um, as well as being intense and ready to play. So fuel systems and the intensity were the two things that we changed and anybody can do that. So um, it's important to understand what you need prior to a match to be able to make significant change at the start of your matches. Wow, love that. That's that's really fantastic. Thank you for the insight there, Mark. Um, and you mentioned, um, I think, was it a, the parent who was charting the the um, kids match who uh, you know thought he wasn't serving well, but he actually had pretty decent stats actually. But uh, you know, one question for you is: um, in what ways can you know club level players like us um, utilize you know the you know I guess data collecting and analysis as well? I mean, obviously you mentioned charting. I mean. You know, are there apps out there? And also, I think there are, you know, some sites that you can, like, submit match footage. So, like, what do you recommend for us to, uh, to you know, uh, explore this realm of, uh, of advanced tennis uh, statistics? I think there's, there's a few ways. Obviously, you know, having someone take your statistics is really good. Um, what I actually bought was, which was really cool, um, and most tournaments and competitions allow you to film your matches. But if you can... On, on eBay, I got it for $19. It's not very expensive, but it's kind of like this arrow book that hooks on defenses and you put your phone in it. Um, very simple, very easy way to do it. You can take it anywhere you like. It's literally put in your pocket. You can take it anywhere. Um, and I put those on our fences and we, we get players to take them with them to tournaments and we film the match. Once you film the match, download an app, which we've been using lately, which is called Swing Vision. Um, very accessible to everybody. We put into Swing Vision. We can get basic stats and data from that um, to be able to help us to dissect. But also, it actually cuts up your vision so you don't see any of the in-between point things. So it's actually watching a two-hour match in 20 to 30 minutes. So, And we also put it on YouTube as well. So we create a YouTube channel for our players. They upload their matches to YouTube. We have Swing Vision. We put it in there to get the basic stats. And then we also use our data analyst in Shane to be able to help us to to clean up the data, to create data reports from it. And it's very, very easy. And I'm talking players that are playing local recreational level as well as performance level. We're doing it at all levels of the game because we get multiple data, um, uh, multiple things of data. So we've got vision, we've got the data um, from a numbers standpoint, and then we can get reports and spit out reports from that. So we can have different ways to look at it and, over time, we can see progression or regression um, or if someone stagnates, but it gives you measurement tools. So the more you are filming your match, the more you can actually understand what you are doing from a visual standpoint to see it, 
then from the numbers standpoint to, to get factual information rather than opinion. And it actually helps you so much more to then to measure your success rates rather than to guess what your success rates are. You know, sometimes we win matches because the opponent plays poorly, but yet we think we're playing well. You know, is it a, a false sense of reality sometimes, you know, but we need to understand why and how we do things. And a lot of the time we look at data to see why we're losing. Um, look at data why you're winning. That, that to me is a big shift that I've made in my coaching in the last 10 years. And, and it's something that I've learned from the, the football standpoint is we look at why we win matches, not why we lose matches. And if you look at what your strengths are to be able to use those strengths more often, I think you'd be a better off player than looking at what you're doing really poorly because it just highlights the fact of those things and gives you more negativity and, and actually brings you down from a mental standpoint. Wow. Um, you know, I, I don't know if you know, Mark, but I've been writing a lot of notes <laughs> from, from your responses. So I'm really looking forward to, uh, you know, reviewing and uh, implementing. So, uh, yeah, really a lot of uh, great stuff. And I also, I, I did interview, um, you know, the creator or founder of um, Swing Vision. So really fascinating that he, he came from uh, doing AI at Tesla. And so um, really great app there. Um, so I guess, um, you know, in terms of next steps, Mark, I mean, you know, again, like from the lens of a club level player, you know, three five to five or something like that. Like, what um, what would you recommend us to do in terms of like, I guess, what data point or a couple of points would you recommend us, you know, look at first that would make like a you know maybe one of the biggest impacts in our games that we could then you know take action from learning about that. I guess it really depends on on what you're trying to achieve, and that's kind of the, the when we find our purpose behind everything. It's really important. But with any kind of player, I, the the best suggestion I have for anyone that wants to improve their game is watch yourself play. You know, um, you know, I think that we can we we can assume things are happening, we can feel things are happening, but until you see it, I think it just makes so much more sense as to why things happen when you see it. Um, you know, if, if people want to get better, uh, it's not just a matter of going out and just hitting balls. It's like, well, why am I hitting it? What's the purpose behind it? Creating purpose in everything we do is critical. So if you don't quite understand why things are happening and what are you practicing? Why are you practicing? What is the practice session aimed to achieve? And a lot of our players do the same, you know, very similar levels to what you're talking about. You know, it depends on where you're at in your, in your, uh, journey of the game but our players go and practice for no reason whatsoever because they're told that they have to practice you know because they want to get better but there's no purpose behind the session vision will give you purpose behind the session you don't have to have any numbers whatsoever if you see yourself play i will guarantee you'll pick five six seven eight ten things that you're like wow that's really letting me down now that the art of that is to, to say to yourself okay what is the first priority and what's going to be give me the most bang for buck? So if I've been, um, for me, I always look at the serve and the return first and foremost. You are always going to serve or you're always going to return. If, if anything else that you do, um, I would just not even go past serve and return. If you're not making enough serves or not positioning it well enough or you can't execute your serve, you're on the back foot straight away. If you're unable to neutralize the rally from the return, back foot straight away it doesn't matter what happens post those two shots if those two shots are not good enough so watch yourself play see what your serves are doing see what your returns are doing are you making an impact are they effective enough if they're not 
that's where I would start. And then maybe take some data behind those two areas of the game. From a return standpoint would be, how many returns am I putting in play? And how many times do I get the first strike after that? Am I doing enough with my return that actually gets me into a controlling position? Or am I on defense after that shot? And on the serve, same thing. Am I getting in a position where I get the first strike in the rally? Or are they able to read my serve too easily that they're putting me into defense? And then I don't get first strike. So they're the two areas I would look at straight away. And you can make a massive improvement through serve and return data and vision. Brilliant, brilliant. Uh, definitely uh, hope everybody takes that, uh, you know, that step that Mark mentioned. Uh, really valuable advice again. Uh, Mark, um, you know, you're doing great work, as we mentioned, uh, you know, at the top of the show, um, you know, specifically as well with Tennis Menu. So I just want to ask you about, um, you know, Tennis Menu is, you know, what that's all about and, you know, uh, how people can maybe check that out as well if they're interested and found value from this presentation. Yeah, thanks uh, for your kind words. Um, Tennis Menu is a project that's been going for a long time and and we've gradually really um, making some massive inroads in some courses, which is something that we changed and shifted our, our, our focus to. So we're creating some some courses. Our first one, uh, first big one, there's a few um, smaller ones on there at the moment, so check them out. Some, we've got 900 drills, um, technical interventions. So if you're looking at improving any kind of um, technical uh, things in your game, there's 900 in- interventions there on how you can work on different things. Um We've got a flexibility program up there at the moment with uh, Limmer with Lauren. She's amazing. Um, we've got a biomechanical pressure grouping your biomechanics. Um, so if you want to improve from a biomechanical standpoint and understand biomechanics, there's a, a great course on that with a biomechanist that I have in my team at the moment in Nicholas Pursuital. Um, and now we're about to break into, we've um, always got them going. We're about to film actually next week. Um, we've got a forehand force breaking down the forehand, breaking down the backhand, breaking down the serve. Um, into the nitty-gritty with different case studies um, and biomechanical pr- pressure-proofing everything. And then we're looking at also, um, we've got a sports psych on board who will have his courses up very shortly and a nutritionist on board. So if you're looking at, you know, the one percenters in your game, you know, the mindset stuff, the nutritional stuff, it's going to be a, a, a few courses there. And yeah, we're looking at teaming with some different people across the board to uh, to work with us to to create a, a one one-stop shop to tennis, um, improving your game, improving your knowledge. Um, there's a lot of free stuff on our social media at the tennis menu, all over Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn. Um, you know, add us there. If you, if you keen to ask any questions, um, I pride myself on being accessible. Um, I don't want to be this person on the screen. I'm pretty accessible and I'll personally reply to you. Um, so most of the replies, all the replies you get are from me. It does take a bit of time, but um, I do reply to every single person and, and make sure that that I help you out. And tennis has given me so much, Merba, and then I want to give back to the game. So, um, you know, that's kind of why the tennis venue is there. And I want to give back to, to people and I want to give people an opportunity to learn the game that don't have much around resources in their countries or in their areas. And um, that's kind of why the tennis venue started and that's why I continue to do it. And it does create a, a lot less time for me and my family, but it, it creates a lot of um, uh, fulfillment and reward um, and, and a lot of giving back because that's kind of what the tent the game has given me so much. So I want to give back to the game and, and to the people that want to get better. So um, yeah, check us out and, and, and yeah, reach out anytime. Brilliant. It's, uh, it's awesome. Um, thanks for all your contributions. And and just to clarify too, I mean, tennis menu to check that out um, is at tennis menu dot. 
Yeah, the ten the tennismenu.com. Uh um, okay. Yeah, the tennismenu.com uh, for that for the website. Um you can actually if you go on there on the front page as soon as you get there, if you just jump on and you can download a, a player development recipe. So you can jump on there anytime. Um, you know, all you need to get do is put your email in and, and you get a uh it's about a fifteen to twenty page player development recipe. So um just looking at how do you build a game and what are the most important things and so forth. So um, we've got free blogs on there, podcast, um, plenty of things on there. So jump on and yeah, check it out. And yeah, and also let us know, give us some feedback on what you would like to see as well. We'd love to um, create our content based on what everybody wants to, to learn about. So that'd be cool. Awesome. Sweet. And we'll, we'll obviously we'll have um, the, all the links that we mentioned um, regarding test menu uh, below this video. So awesome. Uh uh, Mark, thank you again for coming on and, uh, you know, uh, being with us uh, on the event again. And uh, always a pleasure. And definitely everybody check out the tennis menu. Um, so, yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks, Mark. Uh, definitely. I'm sure we'll keep in touch and uh, happy to support anything you're doing. So thanks so much. Always a pleasure. And thanks for having me. In, and uh, yeah, thanks for, you know, supporting supporting what I do and having me on for so many years. It kind of Kind of feels like uh like yesterday we started and it was seven years later. So it's um it's a credit to you and and what you're doing for the sport as well. And hopefully we can continue to impact as many people as we can to to continue to love the game and continue to grow it and, and make it the best sport in the world. So thank you for having me. Definitely, definitely, hundred percent. Uh, always a pleasure. And thanks, Mark. Talk to you soon. Thank you. All right. I hope that you really enjoyed this session with Mark Sophilus. Um Really great uh, discussion on how to use data to win more matches. And um, I really would encourage you to check out the tennis menu at thetennismenu.com. Um, that's the instructional uh, tennis website that Mark and his team have put together with a lot of great content on there. And also would appreciate if you would leave a review for the Tennis Files podcast if you have not yet. Uh, definitely helps the show be more visible to others, which just helps everybody improve, which is a great thing that you're doing by just le- um, spending a minute or a few seconds leaving a review there. And you can do that at tennisfiles.com slash Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast app of choice that you use to listen to the show. Um, so yeah, appreciate that very much. Also want to leave you with a quote as I do, uh, as I do at the end of every show. And this one is by Wayne Dyer. And Wayne said, if you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. Very powerful how you switch a few words around and you have a very profound thought there. But that is definitely correct. Uh, Definitely the way you perceive things uh, is huge. And, you know, how well you operate, how happy you are and successful you are and so forth. So, yeah, really, uh, really great advice there. Thank you, Mr. Dyer. Um, And with that, uh, thanks so much for listening. Uh, Definitely looking forward to bringing you uh, more uh, very helpful interviews uh, to help you improve your game and other content. And also looking forward to the summer swing. Uh, Wimbledon's coming up. Uh, Excited particularly about the City Open tennis tournament that's coming to D.C. I guess it's the Mubadala City Open, excuse me. And it'll be a tour 500 level for both the men and women so that's fantastic and us open as well so yeah and just trying to play more definitely feeling better um after my uh pulling my hip uh sorry pulling my groin actually uh not not super fun but definitely working my way back so 
things are good, and I hope you're doing well. And again, um, just keep improving your tennis game, whether it's on or off the court, in the gym, wherever, on the track. And with that, I'll see you next time. Have a great one. Thanks for listening to the Tennis Files podcast. For more tips to help you improve your tennis game, visit TennisFiles.com.